Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, this is Amy Gunn from Heels in the Courtroom. Today, we're going to share with you an episode that I have done with another podcast called Trial Tested, sponsored by the American College of Trial Lawyers. My focus in the trial tested episodes is to interview exceptional women in law and other professions. We hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the American College of Trial Lawyers podcast, Trial Tested. I'm Amy Gunn, a fellow in St. Louis, and today I have the privilege of speaking with Kati Martin, a journalist, human rights activist, and author. Born in Budapest, Hungary, her family settled in Maryland following the Hungarian Revolution of 1956. She studied at Wells College and the Sorbonne and earned her master's degree in international relations from George Washington University. She's the author of over nine books and has worked as a broadcast reporter for ABC News, PBS, and NPR as a reporter for The New Yorker, Atlantic Monthly, Times of London, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, Vanity Fair, and The New Republic. For her work, she is the recipient of a 2001 Rebecca Kohut Humanitarian Award by the National Council of Jewish Women and the 2002 Matrix Award for Women Who Changed the World and the Commander's Cross of the Order of the Merit of the Republic of Hungary, which is the country's highest civilian honor. She has also been in leadership and member positions of many organizations, including the former chair of the International Women's Health Coalition, chief advocate of the Officer of the Special Representative for Children and Armed Conflict at the United Nations, director and former chair of the Committee to Protect Journalists, and a member of the board of the Human Rights Watch for over 10 years. Hello, Kati, and thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? I'm great, and thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure. You know, we're so honored to have you with us today and to have joined us in Rome as well at our conference. The topic today, of course, is going to be largely about your recent book, The Chancellor, The Remarkable Odyssey of Angela Merkel. And I can't wait to get into that book. But I want to ask you to begin with, you've written a number of books before. What puts you on to Angela Merkel as your topic, as your subject? Thanks, Amy. It really is such an honor for me to be speaking not only with you, but to your colleagues in Rome coming from all over the country, trial lawyers who I hope not to need in the near future, but (laughs) very much look forward to befriending. So thank you for the honor of that invitation. So yes, this is my 10th book. I um, was astonished to discover that there wasn't a real biography of her. And here is this woman more powerful than any woman leader, maybe since Queen Elizabeth I. An astonishing story. We'll get into that, how this triple outsider, a scientist, a woman from the East, and above all, a woman in a male political culture, which was the Federal Republic of Germany. So how did she do that? So I wanted to capture the human story. I mean, I write for an American audience, though I have to say, (laughs) not to boast, but this book has been translated into, I think now, 18 languages. 
So, so I'm thrilled about that, but I do write for, I'm an American author. So I wasn't particularly interested in the minutia of German politics, which is deliberately boring and not, you know, to get into the weeds of the Bundestag. I wanted to get as close to the world's most private public person as I possibly could. And so that was the goal I set for myself, kind of the Everest of projects in my writing life. Well, and I have read the book. I think it's a wonderful example of writing style that is compelling and takes you on this journey of her life. Now, she was born in West Germany, but moved to East Germany with her family. Her father was a preacher, right? Right, right. And this was, yeah, just to remind our listeners, this was at the beginning of the Cold War when traffic was going in the opposite direction, when thousands were fleeing the Red Army and the communist occupiers of the East and trying to get out of East Germany. And her family, namely her assertive, powerful pastor father, Lutheran pastor, decided to take his family East to preach to the atheist country of East Germany, a huge, momentous decision, and for which his family paid, including his daughter, Angela Merkel, who was forced to spend her first 35 years in the prison state run by the strictest communist regime, the Stasi regime of East Germany, the Stasi being the secret police of East Germany, which outdid even its predecessor, the Gestapo, in terms of penetration of private lives, of surveillance. And that's the nest into which Merkel was plunked and hugely impactful, those origins in who she became and how she made it up to the very top and how she not only, I mean, people get elected once, you know, by some fluke, she was reelected four times. So a great deal of that strength of character of hers, that composure, that iron composure, which neither Trump nor Putin could shake, comes from those origins. Sorry, long-winded answer. (laughs) Oh, no, not at all. But that made me really remember a couple of stories that really stood out in your book regarding just those two individuals, Putin and Trump. And one of the tenets I think of her leadership style, of her personality, probably from her upbringing, was very simply, don't take the bait. Right, right, right. I mean, there's nothing that a bully hates more than someone who pretends they hadn't noticed. For example, her first, I mean, as you all well know, I mean, Putin was a trained KGB officer. He was trained partly in Germany. So he's a fluent German. He was posted to Dresden when Merkel was a young woman. So they have a very clear understanding of each other, which is, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into that. It's one of the key parts of my book is that relationship, because Merkel was really the only leader whom he respects. Do you think it was at least partly based on the idea that she wouldn't play the games or wouldn't take that bait, wouldn't fall into what Putin exactly wanted other people to do? Couldn't be goaded. Um, yeah. So for the, I started to say for their first meeting, because of course he did his research as a good KGB officer does about her weaknesses and vulnerabilities and knew that she was afraid of dogs because she had twice been bitten as a child. And so what does he do on their first meeting? He unleashes his huge black 
Labrador, Coney, who goes straight for the chancellor, Mm -hmm. who absolutely freezes, but it sits there like a rock. And afterwards, her staff, who I befriended over the last five years, and they became my trusted sources, they were appalled. Their hair was on fire. How could he do that to our chancellor? And she typically calm, composed, said, he has to do this. He has to prove his manhood. And this is all he has. Russia has no successful economics or social policy. He has to prove his manhood. So her level of composure really proved to be, first of all, a good lesson for all of us. If you're being bullied, I mean, one can't always be composed. But for example, when Trump at a G8 meeting in Canada fished out an old piece of candy from his pocket, you know, covered with lint or whatever, and tossed it at Merkel and said, here, Angela, don't say I never gave you anything. Tossed it at And all the other guys around the table, you know, from Trudeau to Macron to Abe, they they were all aghast. Of course. But Merkel, no reaction, as if she hadn't noticed. And, you know, that pretty much drove him bonkers, that he couldn't shake her composure. He couldn't get a rise out of her. And, you know, another lesson for all of us, you know, just do not engage with skunks. It's so true. And a lot of our listeners, of course, are lawyers. And not a day goes by that you're not goaded or offered the bait, so to speak. And so I agree. I just the idea that things that I tell my children, such as, you know, my boys, don't take the bait. The reason he's doing that is just to get a rise out of you would operate similarly on such a high level. Yes. And the fact that it's almost revolutionary, that it would be news almost. I mean, I think that was one of the takeaways, of course, from your book is that everyone, well, I guess I should speak for myself, knew (laughs) how successful Angela Merkel was as the chancellor. And as you say, continued to be elected that position year after year. And as a woman, Mm -hmm. there has to be a secret to that success. And that certainly was part of it. Well, I think that she's left us a template for a different kind of leadership. I call it ego-free. She really parked her ego when negotiating, and it was not ever about her. It was about finding common ground. And she was always the last to leave the table. And she was always better prepared than her interlocutors, her opposite number. And she has tremendous stamina, needs very little sleep, three or four hours. You know, she negotiated the end of Putin's first aggression into Ukraine in 2014. She froze that conflict. It was an incomplete piece, obviously, but it did end the hot war. And she stayed at that table so long that she later said, the only way I knew the time of day was whether they were serving a roast or bread and jam. Oh, my goodness. That level of focus and determination to find common ground. I mean, that's really extraordinary. 
you know, I was lucky enough to be married to a great negotiator, Ambassador Richard Holbrook, who negotiated the end to the war in the Balkans. And so I did observe Richard and I was frequently making comparisons between Merkel and Richard and uh, very different styles. You know, Richard would use charm and force. And of course, ultimately, he had B-59 bombers <laughs> ready to go <laughs> too, which didn't hurt. But mostly he overwhelmed his opposite numbers. And he too, like Merkel, was negotiating with some of the worst characters on the world stage, notably Slobodan Milosevic and the other Balkan warlords. But Merkel, it's a different approach. She does not use Holbrook's bluster and charm. She uses an amazing preparation for an amazing grounding in details and a grasp of facts and figures and the granular details of what was happening that minute on the ground in Crimea that Putin could just not wiggle out of. And it helps, Amy, that she has a photographic memory. And we haven't mentioned that she was trained as a scientist. So she is very comfortable with facts, figures, and charts. And that also was a great weapon in her arsenal. And when you were mentioning those details, it did call to mind her training as a chemist, as you say. Yes. And let's go back a little bit to her upbringing. We talked mm -hmm. about her Lutheran pastor she found herself doing very well in school, but I do recall, I believe you wrote about a story where she almost didn't graduate high school. Can you tell right. us about that? Okay. Yes, this was her first real exposure to just how ruthless a totalitarian state could be against one of their brightest. I mean, as you said, she was always number one in her class in every field, including Russian language. She's a fluent Russian speaker. By the way, another weapon that she had in dealing with Putin is that they literally speak each other's languages. Right. Although I asked her not long ago what language, well, she was still in the chancellery, uh, what language she now uses with Putin. And she said, these days, it's more German than Russian because his German has stayed very strong, whereas she doesn't use her Russian that much. But they don't need a translator between them, which is a huge asset in direct negotiation. Of course. But, sorry, I jumped several leagues ahead there. So she was almost kept from graduating, even though she was first in her class in high school, because of a prank. The senior class was putting on a skit and they decided to sing in English, which was, of course, the language of the enemy, namely us, and they were going to hold her back. And her father, Lutheran pastor father, had to intervene to make sure that she could graduate. But it was a good lesson for her in that the state was all powerful. And she learned very early to keep her head down and to call minimal attention to herself. Again, these are skills that proved extraordinarily useful in West German politics, which came shortly after the fall of the wall when she literally you know, crossed that first dramatic night when the wall came down. She was part of that surge of East Germans who uh, flooded into West Berlin from East Berlin. She'd never been to West Berlin and she was, mm. of course, just dazzled by what she saw. But very soon thereafter, she took off her white lab coat and decided, I'm going to try politics. And, and that fascinates me as well, because you don't often think of scientist turned mm -hmm. politician. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure there are examples out there. 
What about, and we talked a little bit about her training and skills as a scientist and how she used that to her advantage as a politician, but what gave her the idea or the ambition to make that leap? The fact is that she had chosen science because science was not easy for even the most committed totalitarian regime to manipulate. I mean, Uh facts are facts. So she had basically parked her remarkable brain in a safe zone. And she actually, for all her rather straight-laced image, she really likes people. And she likes interacting with people, not necessarily fellow politicians. She actually, given her druthers, she'd rather have a drink at the end of the day with an actor. Another surprise in my research was that Tony Blair, a prime minister whom she worked with a bit, was astonished to discover that after a long day of negotiating, Merkel was the last to leave the bar. (laughs) (laughs) She likes stamina. The stamina comes into play. Right, right. right. (laughs) And also she likes to have a good time. I mean, she doesn't think that that's my business or yours to know what she does after hours. I mean, it's not that she does anything wild and crazy. She doesn't dance as well as the prime minister of Finland, (laughs) who I am sure she is cheering. (laughs) That reminds me of a story. Now, her mentor was Helmut Kohl. And did she actually work for him at some point? Oh, yes. Yeah. So Cole was the gigantic in every way, physically and politically in his stature, figure of East and West German unification. As a young correspondent in Germany in those days, I was working for ABC News. I mean, Cole was like untouchable. He was so huge. But she is the one. Angela Merkel, youngest cabinet minister in history, was the one who ended her mentor's career. And how did she do this? And why did she do this? And what do we learn about her through this decapitation? A, she's ruthless when necessary. B, she's extraordinarily strategic. And C, she puts her country way ahead of politics. So her party, the CDU, the Christian Democratic Union, the Conservative Party, was willing to look the other way when Cole, in kind of the twilight of his era, was caught in a kickback scandal and refused to release the names of his biggest donors. And Merkel, in an extraordinarily bold move, wrote an op-ed in one of the most read German newspapers saying, basically, the king is dead. She might have added, long live the queen, because because it kind of cleared her passage to the chancellery. But she was the only one in that party of men who had the courage to say, thank you for your service, Helmut, but you are jeopardizing our party and our nation, ultimately. I mean, think about that. Think about the notion of a politician, and she was a rising young politician in those days, putting countries so far ahead of politics and of personal relationships. I mean, this was the man who gave her her big chance, made her first minister for women and youth and then minister for the environment. She could not have become chancellor without Helmut Kohl's support. And she's the one who ended his career. Do you think that was a difficult decision for her to make? 
for sure. I mean, she knew she owed him, although she was kind of bristling under his kind of patronizing attitude toward her. He called her my machin, my young woman. Machin is kind of a put down. Um, and she wanted to be independent of him. But she never would have done that if he wouldn't have completely disappointed her. She's a woman of very strong values. And although she considers faith to be a private matter, She's a woman of deep faith, a deep Christian faith. And, you know, if you really want to understand who she is, as I tried to, you have to observe her in church. You know, at first blush, the story of the op-ed and putting the nail in the coffin, so to speak, for Cole, it struck me as very disloyal. That was my first instinct. However, Mm -hmm. completing the book and trying to understand her a little bit better recognizing that her loyalty has never been to a person, right, but to her country. Right. It made sense to me. And isn't this incredibly relevant for us now? Yes. I mean, where should our first loyalty be as Americans? I don't want to get into politics here, God forbid, but you know, she provides so many lessons on how a democracy is meant to work. It's so ironic that it's a German woman who's teaching us about democracy. I mean, the way she left the chancellery just, you know, a few months ago is another lesson in how a democracy is meant to work, very quietly leaving her successor. I mean, how astonishing is that? So it's a little of a chicken and the egg story. Is this the way Angela Merkel is by nature, by training, by Mm -hmm. experience, Mm -hmm. that she's all the things that she mentioned, humble, private, yet ambitious, super smart, just strategic, but at the same time, understanding what her country is and what her country needed to be successful? So did the country form her or did she form the country over the last couple of decades? Or is it a combination? Well, yes. So, of course, she was formed, as we all are, by the conditions of her childhood and upbringing. And in her case, the fact that it was a totalitarian system with limited freedom. So she's a leader for whom war, it's a failure of diplomacy, it's a failure of politics, because she has so assimilated Germany's darkest history She made herself very familiar with the Holocaust, which people in the eastern part of the country barely mentioned in their formation because it's a communist state. And so therefore, they considered themselves the good Germans, whereas the West Germany were the Nazis, which is, you know, kind of a reinvention of history. But the minute that she crossed over from east to west, she started familiarizing herself with all the things that were forbidden knowledge in the east. And one of her early trips was to Israel, where she addressed the Knesset and in a historic speech announced that Israel's security is one of the foundations of Germany's raison d'etre. I mean, an astonishing thing for a German chancellor to say. So uh, all this. And the first one to have done that. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. To link her own country's fate to another country is remarkable. But, you know, she does everything so quietly that I call it working sideways. That's how she made LGBTQ the law of the land, even though she herself, as a staunch Lutheran, was not particularly in favor of gay marriage. But because of her, it is now legal in Germany. But how does she do this? She doesn't do it by giving big speeches. She appointed a gay foreign minister. You know, no speeches, just this is normal. And here's his husband. 
And theirs is a beautiful love story. Mm-hmm. In other words, normalized it. She did that with women to women's empowerment. She brought lots of women to the fore, you know, in contrast to didn't Margaret Thatcher come before America? Well, the fact is that to take nothing away from Margaret Thatcher, but Margaret Thatcher would rather be caught dead than with a woman standing next to her, <laughs> right. you know, but Merkel was surrounded by powerful women. And her protege is now the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, had been her defense minister, mother of seven, doctor. But again, she doesn't believe in big speeches, which was initially why she had a big problem with President Obama, because she thought he was all hat and no cattle, you know, (laughs) great speaker. But where's the beef? Until he started building a record with Obamacare, she decided that there was more to the man than a rousing speaker. And they formed a pretty tight union, but a rocky one. I mean, I describe how that relationship was not smooth sailing. I mean, under Obama, her cell phone was tapped, which she found pretty unforgivable. That was that chilled the relationship for a period of time, did it not? It did. A wasted year is how our ambassador, John Emerson, characterized it to me. A wasted year because... You know, it's not to say that heads of state don't listen in on each other, but this was particularly egregious. And uh, I'm not sure that he personally, Obama personally approved it, but it was on his watch. And Absolutely. But she had many tougher relationships. And obviously the four years of Trump were the most challenging for her. And she was told because she has many friends in the Republican Party And they just told her, you know, he's a deal maker, make deals. And so she set out to do that, did more homework preparing for her meeting with him than for any other head of state and did something that I don't know if you would ever do. I sure wouldn't, which is watched an entire season of The Apprentice. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if that's not going above and beyond and read all his interviews but nothing prepared her for the reality that he actually wasn't that interested in making deals. And that was, you know, America is the gold standard democracy and that America would choose this man was, uh, well, to use her word, disappointing. And one of the issues, of course, during Trump's presidency and continuing now and even before in this country is immigration. And immigration was a big issue, continues to be a big issue in Germany. And she embraced this idea with such open arms and somehow made it happen. Can you help us understand how she did that? For me, her outstanding achievement is the way that she enabled one million mostly Muslim refugees from wars that Germany did not start and not only allowed them passage into Germany, but has enabled them to settle there and to build new lives. But this was the biggest gamble of her career, for sure. Very controversial, but it's barely a topic anymore. There are many other topics now, of course, with the war in Ukraine and, you know, the coming energy crisis. But the assimilation of a million Middle Eastern refugees who were given a second chance in life in an orderly way, thereby providing the rest of us, if we're willing to use that template, there is now a template for how to do that. But it was a high-risk move. 
And uh, I attribute it in great measure to her Christian faith. I describe in detail her encounter with a young refugee girl who started weeping. It was a human moment for Merkel, a realization that these are human beings just like the rest of us. And allowing those million refugees into Germany at a time when her neighbors were busy erecting walls and unspooling barbed wire was truly her Martin Luther moment. Martin Luther, who said, here I stand, I can do no other. Well, that was Merkel. No one else wanted to shoulder a million. Do you think there's any chance that other countries, perhaps ours, could learn from that example, could take those policies and protocols and try to fix this? You know, in writing this book, there's so much we can learn from this quiet German about decency and about how to be a servant of the people and how to run an ego-free politics where it isn't about you. It's not about you. It's about us. Oh, Kati, that is so aspirational. <laughs> well, so call, me, <laughs> call me crazy. I'm, you know, I'm a refugee myself. I came here speaking no English with parents who were political prisoners. In fact, in my native Hungary, a country very much like Merkel's homeland of East Germany, a totalitarian state. And if I had any advantage in writing this book, was twofold. One, that I do understand her motivation, her behavior, her need for privacy, her suspicious nature, because when you grow up in a police state, you really don't trust people easily. I mean, her lab partner was a full-time informer on her. And, you know, it turned out that my nanny was a full-time informer on goings-on in my family. So I wrote a book about that called Enemies of the People, which I sent to Merkel. Uh, and she read, I'm told, by not by her, but by her aides. And I think that gave me a little bit of an entree with her, although it's not like she would ever sit down and unburden herself. That's just not her style. Sure. But uh, she did allow me, I think, greater access in the chancellery and allowed me to observe her in action, which is much more useful than a sit-down interview where she would say nothing that she didn't want to absolutely say, which I've learned from interviewing powerful people. They're not in the business of making news. They're in the business of getting their version of events down for history. So I had that advantage with Merkel was a similar childhood and upbringing. And the nanny, your nanny, was that who informed on your parents? Yes, but everybody was informing on my parents. My parents were the last Western journalists in communist Hungary. And when I was six years old, they were both arrested and convicted as CIA agents. When they passed away a decade ago now, I went back to Budapest and accessed the secret police files in the archives. I was astonished at the degree of surveillance. It was 24-7 for a decade and a half and turn those files into uh, a gripping book, I like to think. And I know that your parents had won the George Polk Award. Is that correct? Yes, 
Yes, the only couple ever to have done so. My father was the AP correspondent in Hungary and my mother at UPI. And we came here to receive those awards. And like the man who came to dinner, we never left. <laughs> Because my mother at that point, she lost her parents in the Holocaust. And then they had just recently done jail time in a communist country. So mm. they kind of gave up on the old world. So we became proud citizens. My parents were among the proudest Americans you would ever, ever meet. And so mm -hmm. relieved to have been given a sanctuary. We were given political asylum here. And certainly never to forget, which I think a lot of U.S. citizens take for granted. I think so. This country has been so lucky. I mean, never occupied, never bombed from the air, no mass deportations. And we have to be very careful. This was Merkel's final message that democracy is not guaranteed ever because she had seen East Germany collapsed like almost overnight. And so she didn't believe that democracy was fixed. And she was astonished to see January 6th unfold here. She was really dismayed by that mm -hmm. and still is because she, as a German historian, knows the power of the big lie. Once that's circulating in the air, it's very hard to withdraw that big lie, which is how Hitler came to power. The big lie that the Jews and the communists sabotaged World War I for Germany. It is frightening how we allow history to repeat itself. The reason that we do, Amy, is that we haven't processed our own darkest history the way Germany has uniquely. And that's exactly right, because Chancellor Merkel was not afraid to own that history and own that past and take it. But she wasn't afraid to own that because yes. she yeah. could take a bow. She could yeah, certainly never, after that. Did. And she never did. I want to ask you on that note, I don't want to say mistakes, but maybe in hindsight, in your book, on page 99, <laughs> there's a discussion about President Bush, and they were trying to come to terms on climate change. And I think she really helped him turn the page on some climate change issues. Mm -hmm. And But she opposed Bush's plan to offer NATO to Ukraine. Yes. And to Georgia. And knowing what we know now in 2022 about Ukraine and now it is being offered membership to NATO, what would that have been like had Ukraine been a member of NATO before now? Well, there are many people who are now looking in light of the terrible war that Putin launched just weeks after Merkel left the chancellor. By the way, I don't think it's a coincidence. No way. No way. He was emboldened by her departure for sure. And also he's not the same man. Many people close to him have noted that he's not the same. I mean, there aren't many people close to him, but let's say a few observers have noted that two years of total lockdown have enhanced his anger, his paranoia, his need to lash out the way he lashed out with his dog at Merkel. He's a very macho guy. And he hated the demise of the Soviet Union in 1989. He considered it, these are his words, the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century. So he launched this war and thereby changed pretty much everything. I mean, it's a far more dangerous world today than when Merkel left the chancellery six months ago. Mm -hmm. And looking for scapegoats, some people are pointing at Merkel that she was too easy on him, that she should have cut off the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. But the fact is that nobody saw this war coming, nobody. And the level of the violence that he has unleashed on a neighbor 
Germany has really stepped up to the plate. Supporting Ukraine has become a matter of national honor. 70% of the German people, despite the fact that they face a very tough fall and winter, they're prepared to make sacrifices because the atrocities that have been unleashed by the Russians and the visual proof of that in, for example, Bucha, you know, for a country that has experienced war and atrocities and genocide as Germany has, it's shaken them to their core. And so they are now beefing up the military. Merkel did not give a single speech on defense while she was chancellor. And I fault her for that. But you know what? There were an awful lot of American leaders who didn't really relish the notion of a militarized Germany. And Merkel's greatest gift, I think, among many, that she leaves her people and the world is that she leaves behind a very stable, mature democracy. Not only is Germany a different country as a result of 16 extremely stable, prosperous, Merkel-led years, but Ukraine, because she froze that conflict, I can't call it stopped because it was never definitive, but she stopped Putin in his tracks in 2014 with her marathon negotiation. As a result, Ukraine, which had no military to speak of, they had even sold the building in which the Defense Department was housed for a good real estate deal. I mean, it was a pathetically ill-prepared for war country, has had eight years to mm -hmm. become uh, the country that we now see, which is extremely cohesive and patriotic with a real sense of nationhood, a sense that we're going to fight to stay alive. And that too, I credit Merkel for, but I also obviously credit this remarkable leader, Zelensky, yet another once in a generation leader who stepped up to his moment. Yes. You were just speaking about Chancellor Merkel's legacy. What else does she leave? She lives a transformed society, for starters. I mean, that's pretty big. A multi-ethnic women and LGBTQ-friendly society that is now prepared for the challenges that are coming its way, the challenges of climate and fuel shortage, and a now aggressive neighbor to the East. Merkel's legacy is that she built this society. She didn't start from the ground up. We'd have to go back to Konrad Adenauer, the first post-war chancellor who decided to tie his fate with that of the U.S., not that of the big neighbor to the East. But I think Merkel is in a state of shock about the aggression and the atrocities unleashed by Putin, a man that she kept under control for 16 years. And I think that if she had still been in power in February when he launched his army, she would have moved much faster than anybody else did. She would have seen the signs mm -hmm. and she would not have been seated at the end of that ridiculous long table because that's not their relationship. Hundreds of hours together, it was her longest dysfunctional marriage as chancellor was with Putin. So I think she might have been able to drill some sense into him, I think, because she had in the past because she has a very strong notion of where he's coming from and his training and his capacity for uh, deception and cruelty. 
because she herself is familiar with the KGB tactics from her own childhood. There's no leader like that who is that clear eyed about what Putin is about. So in terms of a legacy, it's a pretty impressive one, I think. Internal transformation, taking in a million refugees against the advice of most wise men around her, including Henry Kissinger, who told her to give one refugee asylum as a humanitarian act to allow one million is to endanger German civilization. Well, Kissinger was wrong. Yes. What about the perception of women as leaders? What does she bring to the table with respect to that? Maybe her strongest, most long-lasting legacy, and there are so many, will be ultimately that she has put to rest permanently any question that anybody might have about a woman's capacity to lead. That is over, done and dusted after 16 years of Merkel, who made a lot of those macho guys that she faced across the table look a little ridiculous Mm -hmm. because she was so unimpressed by them, which is not to say that she didn't take them seriously, but she just didn't flinch. Well, that does beg the question. Certainly, she isn't retiring, sitting on a beach somewhere, right? What are her plans? You know, because she's a dyed-in-the-wool, bone-deep Democrat, she's not a monarchist. Mm -hmm. She is not a nationalist. She feels that 16 years, and that was four years longer than she had intended, and the reason that she didn't leave after 12 years was because of Trump's election. She was ready to retire. And she just looked at the landscape and saw Trump on one side and Putin on the other and said, no, I've got to put in four more years. But you know what? She is not interested in another job. She's going to have plenty to do. This is a woman with many interests. She's not a power mad politician. She loves music. She loves hiking. She loves reading. She has a great many friends to hang out with. She left the chancellery and returned to the same rent-controlled apartment in central Berlin where she always lived. So this Mm -hmm. isn't like a huge shock. She gives so many lessons in power, how to gain it, how to hold it, and how not to pay the ultimate price, which is your personal values. She held on to her values. She never let others define her. In calm their strength. Honestly, I was transformed by the proximity to this remarkable woman. I was going to say, I think there are lessons for anyone who is interested in service, public service, leadership of any kind. As you say, there are little nuggets, what you've dissected so beautifully out of her years that we should all take with us and embrace. Because I agree, I've always, as I said early in our discussion about don't take the bait. That's just one of those things that I tell everybody, my colleagues, my children, everybody I know. And I'd never thought of it as this overarching philosophy of leadership, but it kind of (laughs) is. I mean, it really kind of is. Yes, self-control and composure. But at the same time, this dogged determination I'm going to stay at this table till the cows come home. We're going to find common ground. Well, Kati, thank you so much for your time. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you what your next project is. What are you working on? 
Well, early stages, and I hope the next time I see you, I'm able to talk about it after every book, which is akin to giving birth, and then some because it takes four or five years. Yeah. I announced to my children, that's it, I'm rejoining the human race, and they roll their eyes. So we'll see, but I am enjoying the aftermath of this really difficult project. <laughs> and the good reviews, I have to admit that has been rewarding too. Well, it should be. And I do, again, very much appreciate being able to speak with you. Thank you for the book. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I don't find time very often in my life, unfortunately, to read a lot, but I did really enjoy this one. So thank Thank you for that. Well, thank you, Amy. I I do feel like we could go on till the cows come home, but I guess there's a limit to uh, everybody else's patience. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Thanks for inviting me to speak. This was a total pleasure. Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you. Send your thoughts to comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law and subscribe today. 